Hi, I have a very special guest with me today. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard, well known for changing the narrative on Thomas Jefferson regarding his relationship with Sally Hemings and their children. Recipient of the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2009 and the National Book Award in 2008 for her book, The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family. In 2010, she received the National Humanities Medal and a MacArthur Fellowship. And her most recent book is Juneteenth. Annette Gordon-Reed, thank you so much. It's truly an honor to speak with you. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I don't know if it was Emerson or Jefferson, because I've heard it attributed to both, and you probably can tell me, who said that every institution is but a shadow cast by its founder. Was that Jefferson or was that Emerson? That sounds like Emerson. Okay. Uh, even if Jefferson didn't say it, I think it certainly applies to him. Uh, the United States is but a shadow cast uh, by that particular founder. Uh, there is no way to overestimate uh his influence on this country, and in many mm -hmm. ways, there's no way to overestimate his influence on the world. The world itself would be different today without him. And yet what you make so clear in all of your writing is the contradictions that mm -hmm. lived within him. Yes. One of the things that I love about your work is that you can go there so truthfully, but with such charity and compassion. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that you are planning to write a biography of Jefferson. You've already read, uh, written about the Hemings, uh, his relationship with Sally Hemings. You're writing of, uh, you told me that you're writing a sequel to that. The part of you that is now going to write a biography, there have been so many biographies written of Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Why are you writing another one? Why are mm -hmm. you still compelled to go there? What is there that you still, what is the story we still need revealed? Well, it's not as much about a revelation there. It's to sort of reorder the life in light of what we now know about his life. I mean, we need a biography that encompasses all of the things that we understand about Monticello today that was not known when they've done other biographies, the, the previous biographies of Jefferson. I mean, his, history is constantly being re revisioned, re, I mean, revised. People talk about revisionist history, but that's, that's part of the process. You get new information, you think about things in a different way, you ask different questions. And so I would like to try to write about Jefferson now in the in light of what we know about the Hemingses, but also all the great work that has been done on the institution of slavery. Uh, slavery has always been a part of the Jefferson story. It's in biographies, but there's been so much wonderful work that's been done on Virginia and the Chesapeake and the world that he lived in that wasn't available, that wasn't thought about, wasn't pulled together in previous times. So I'd like to to sort of bring all of that scholarship into uh, a new understanding about Jefferson, a new telling of the story of his life. And so, and plus, as I said, as you've mentioned here, you know, adding a woman and, and four children or seven children, but four who live to adulthood to somebody's biography is a big deal. Uh, we have to think about, we look at all of those, the stories about his grandchildren, the trips, all of those things that we think about Jefferson, you know, and, and these stories of his life. We have to think of it in light of these people who we now know are there and know about his connection to them. The art of biography has always fascinated me. I'm an avid reader of biographies, and there is something that happens when a woman is the biographer. Mm -hmm. because you say that there are things that we know. The truth of the matter is they knew about Sally Hemings before as well. And you mm -hmm. have a lot of biographies of Thomas Jefferson. And I knew men 
who were teachers of mine, who when I brought up the story of Sally Hemings, they just didn't want to go there. Some of this is not what they didn't know, but what they yes. didn't want to talk about. And I think a woman, which obviously is you, bringing to bear the deeper understanding to separate this man's passion. He was so passionate about, as you've talked about, so many things. He wrote his own Bible. <laughs> he wrote about botany, he wrote about agri uh, agriculture, architecture, um, food, wine, the things he knew about. And to me, Annette, what I've always been fascinated about uh, is his relationship to women. Yes. I mean, his, I mean, can we get down and talk about Jefferson and women? I mean, um, so let's go back to Paris mm -hmm. because it wasn't just Sally Hemings. It was also Maria Cosway which I'm sure that you're going to cover. Uh, he, there's, there's, for me, as I'm sure for you, a almost startling modernity to Jefferson. Mm -hmm. He's like, goes through time, but he never seems quite in the past. Like when you read the story, he's, he's, he's John Trumbull, when he introduced him to Maria Cosway, and mm -hmm. Jefferson said, uh, I'm going to have to leave this dinner. I have work to do. I have business to attend to. Well, the business he had to attend to was Maria, right? No, so. Yeah. And that, that whole, I mean, the, his, his relationship to women is as multidimensional as everything else. Well, well, he, uh, he, he's, yeah, you're right. There is this modernity to him. He's sort of ahead of his time in lots of ways. I mean, his connection to his wife, his uh, love for his wife is very modern. It was not just a, a marriage of convenience or a marriage to, no. you know, for, to unite it was it was a companionate love match between the two of them, and he was devastated when he died. And, and at times when she was ill, because she was ill often uh, due to uh, complications from pregnancy and childbirth, he would stay with her. And he got a lot of criticism from men who would say, you know, you're supposed to come back to the Congress here. You're you've got stuff to do. You have public things to do. You're hanging out with your wife. That was seen as kind of almost unmanly to be that attentive to, to a spouse. And he had that, that kind of sensibility, something that we would think would be admirable today, but then at the time was thought of as being, as I said, unmanly to be so focused on your wife. And I have read in biographies that he was so inconsolable after her death that in fact it was, I think, Washington and, and uh, uh, Franklin and others who got together and said, what are we going to do? And one of them said, let's send him to Paris. Mm -hmm. That the whole mm -hmm. idea of his going to Paris, maybe you could correct me if that's wrong. No, well, Ma that's no Madison, that was a suggestion of his friend Madison, that this would be a change of, of pace for him. He had been asked before, but he wouldn't go because she was ill. And see, again, that's another example of him. People at the time thought that was shirking a duty. Uh, but for him, it was a part of his duty as a husband to be there. And Madison and others got the idea that this would be, after they heard about how he, how undone he was by all of this, that this would be a change of pace for him. And that's how he ends up accepting the commission to go to Paris. You have written about how Sally Hemings was one of the people around um, Martha's deathbed. Mm -hmm. And that supposedly, I had read you from you or somewhere else that Martha supposedly gave her a souvenir, gave her a gift before she died. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you have talked about is that in ways that we almost can't comprehend now, given that they were enslaved people, these people were family to him. Yes. Yes. Sally they Hemings. Yes. Yeah, Sally Hemings and Martha 
uh, Jefferson's wife were half-sisters. They had the same father, John Wales. Mm -hmm. And um, unlike many situations where a, a, a plantation owner or the son of a plantation owner had children with an enslaved woman, uh, where they would sell them or say, get them away from me, Martha actually brought her half-siblings, including Sally Hemings, to Monticello when she got married. And they pretty much installed them as their personal servants. So it wasn't a matter of getting them away. It was bringing them into the into the fold. And indeed, Jefferson replaces his long-term valet, uh, enslaved valet, Burl, excuse me, Burl Colbert is later. This is, this is Jupiter Evans, who's the same age as Jefferson. At age 30, he replaces him with 12-year-old Robert Hemings, which is Sally Hemings' brother and Martha's brother. So He's 12 years old and he becomes Jefferson's valet. And you, you have to think that this was sort of a symbolic cementing of the family connections even more so. Sally ends up in Paris. She's taking the little girl to Paris. And while I have read you and others talk about the complications of freedom, for all intents and purposes, once her feet touched ground in France, she was technically, legally in that country, no longer enslaved to him, correct? Mm -hmm. Well, she, she would have had to file a petition, but every petition, it was pro forma. Every, it was granted. Uh, every petition that was filed in the 18th century in Paris was granted. So yes, she, could, she and her older brother, James, who was there with her, he'd come before uh, with Jefferson, um, they could have taken their freedom there in, in Paris. And Jefferson thought of them as free people. You, he kind of shows that by paying them wages. That was the first time. He continues the practice later on when he comes back to the United States, paying people who are away from Monticello, working for him, um, pay them wages. But he pays James and Sally Hemings wages while they're in Paris. And that's a further indication. And he had a letter too, where he basically says that if, if an enslaved person finds out that, you know, knows that you know, finds out the law in in the United, in France that they would be free because the law was so far on their side, there would be nothing that they could do, that the uh, putative owner could do in those circumstances. So it was a very different circumstance than in Virginia. You are very careful as the historian that you are. You make it very clear where this we can know, this we cannot know. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have lived with these people. Mm -hmm. and you are a woman, and you understand. Mm -hmm. Did he love her? Uh, people, everyone asks me that all the time. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I don't have any problem thinking that he did. He was certainly attached to her. It, it's hard for me to imagine that he could have a purely sexual interest in her for 38 years. That's right. I mean, to arrange for her to be in his life on a daily basis for that length of time. She was his wife's half-sister. Um, and I don't wonder, I can't know, but I don't wonder. It clearly meant something to him because he treats all of those six siblings very differently from the way he treats the other enslaved people at Monticello. So, you know, love, there is definitely, I think that there's reason to believe that he was attached to her. Their grandchildren, one of uh, their grandchildren said talks about how he felt about her said that he Mr. Jefferson loved her dearly that's what their family line 
says. They don't talk about how she felt about him. I mean, but they talk about, and I think it may be because he, as the, once she gets back to Virginia, once she gets back to Virginia, he's totally in her, she is totally in his control. And so the focus more is on what he's thinking um, in that time period. But that's what the family, the family story about this one line of the family, and like saying all of the family had this story, but one line from their, uh, uh, their grandchildren uh, said that about him. And that's why he bargained for her, wa- really wanted her to return to the United States with him uh, when she was thinking about staying there uh, and taking her freedom. And he gave her, quote unquote, extraordinary privileges were offered to her. He basically made a deal with her, correct? That if you come back with me, he negotiated. um, And one of those things was, of course, what she cared about, what will happen to my children if I go back. And um, tell me about the children and um, what happened. I'm particularly fascinated by what happened with the daughters who ended up leaving and going into white society I read somewhere where they were told, you will never see your mother again. You will never be able to tell anyone. Mm-hmm. And what this must have been like for her mm-hmm. to well, have to... she comes back from France with him, and the child that she is carrying uh, in Did Paris, die. which makes her want to stay, because she understood that in, under Virginia law, you were enslaved on the basis of what your mother was. So any child that she gave birth to in Virginia would be enslaved. Um, That child died and then she had seven more, she had six more kids, only four of them lived to adulthood, which is not uncommon in that time period. People forget that people lost children to whooping cough, all kinds of things um, that are not serious to us anymore now. Um, And those children live at Monticello until 1822, the two eldest kids, Beverly, which is a male, William Beverly, and Harriet leave Monticello to live as white people. And they have disappeared off the radar screen. Uh, we, I've, one of the things I'm going to try to do, I don't think that I'm going to be successful in writing the next, this book about the next generation of people, is maybe try to see if I could track some, something down on that. But they went into the white world, married white people, and as far as we know, I mean, they kept contact with the family by letters, apparently. Uh, but we don't know if they ever came back to Monticello. We don't know what the story is with that, because obviously it would be very dangerous for them to make a connection to family members who were people of color because it would blow their whole cover. Right. You know, about being white. Um, the two youngest children. Madison and Eston were freed in Jefferson's will, and they remain in Virginia. When Jefferson dies, they take their mother from Monticello and move into Charlottesville, and they stay there basically until she dies. And then they move out to Ohio into a a black community. But then Eston, the youngest, when things really get bad in Ohio, they, you know, pressing down on black people even more, cutting down on their rights and so forth. He moves to Madison and he changes his racial designation and his name. He becomes E.H., you know, Eston Hemings Jefferson, and he changes his racial designation to white. So, yeah, so it's, it's a, the kids are freed and 
but they have to, some of them leave the rest of the family to go live as white people. Cause you can, you just think of how, how difficult it must have been, how difficult it was to be considered you know, African-American or black in that time period. And for their children's sake, I guess, they decided that it was better to leave that world behind. Madison stays in the black community, um, but the others eventually go into the white community. But it's so fascinating. I've heard you speak about the fact that when Jefferson was president, and as, as you said, his relationship with Sally Hemings lasted his entire life. Mm-hmm. People apparently knew. I mean, it wasn't just James Callender. It was others talked about it. It was scandalous. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Jefferson's concubine, et cetera. And yet they reelected him president. So there was something about that time in which there was a weird almost acceptance mm-hmm. that seems odd to us now, but was there, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that time and other times as well. There have been other moments when people have tried to use the personal life of the president to, you know, to say that this person isn't fit for office. And American people typically don't have not bought that. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if, if they like other things about the person, um, James Callender breaks this story during Jefferson's presidency. But then Jefferson in 1803 buys Louisiana. Right. And <laughs> Made him popular size, again. Yeah. Just, you know doubles the size of the country and people think, you know, I don't really care about that. Uh, There are these other things that he has done. And so, yeah, you know, people, people wrote, you know, songs about them, you know, satirical songs about them. John Quincy Adams, the poetry, uh, poetry, poetry sort of uh, anonymously wrote. Uh uh, And Jefferson knew, how's your poetry? Yeah, yeah, he knew about it. He knew that who who was doing all of this. Um, So, yeah, if you mention the name Sally, in relationship to Jefferson, people knew who you were talking about. Well, obviously, his relationship with Sally Hemings displays a profound contradiction uh, within him, uh, mm-hmm. the hypocrisy of the fact that he was a slave owner, while he, I think, did clearly love her. And of course, this was also the author of the Declaration of Independence. So there was no greater contradiction than his relationship to the institution of slavery. This is a man who both owned slaves and said famously, I tremble for my country when I consider God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where do you think, you know, sometimes we have two parts of the brain. It's, you know, it's, we have many parts of the brain, but sometimes you can know something with one part of the brain and just live in some other part. You know, I, I heard you in one interview say something I appreciated, which is, you know, we can look at him now and say, what a hypocrite. And you say, people will look at us one day and say, what a hypocrite we are, that we're driving around in cars when we know the planet is burning. Yes, but you yes. also say, every generation asks a different kind of question. Mm-hmm. Every generation does a different kind of um it's almost today like we're in a period of profound reckoning and mm-hmm. nothing more so than with the institution of slavery and with race, not only in the past, but in the present. Mm-hmm. Where do you see Jefferson's behavior, Jefferson's words, and Jefferson's life as core to what we're dealing with now in terms of race and racial justice? Well, the whole question of how black people fit, African-American people fit into the American Polity. That is still, for some people, evidently an open question. Uh, there's some uncertainty about that, even though the 14th Amendment, uh, the Civil War Amendments make it plain that a new birth of freedom was created and blacks are citizens of this country. Um, 
for Jefferson, it, it was a tough question because he didn't think, well, first place, African-Americans were not supposed to be here. The slave trade was a radical injustice. It should not have taken place. But what we fault him for, the things that, that we understand is that after, you know, centuries being here, African-Americans belong here. You know, you can't, you shouldn't have punished people because their ancestors Your ancestors have been here longer than my ancestors have been here. No, so it's it's been a while, you know, and yeah. uh, so this question of where black people fit, how they fit into the polity, and that's Jefferson's conundrum. That's the thing that he talks about or thinks about uh, when he's writing on these subjects is there from the beginning. And we're still talking about this today. So you know, he, he's up and down, as you know, uh, there was a period of time. He's always been a controversial figure, but in the 19th century, uh, after the Civil War, there were people in the South who blamed him um, for the Declaration, did not like the words of the Declaration. There were people in the North who said his state's rights stance was problematic. And so he's up and down. Right now, he's in a period where we're, we're castigating him because of his you know, racial views. Uh, his views on religion, however, uh, are, to my mind, uh, a saving grace for him are very important and something that we will, will probably focus upon even more uh, in, in the future. So he, there, as you said, there's so many aspects of him that people fixate on different parts at different moments in uh, in the country's history. But right now, because of we're talking about race, it's a difficult time for him. Yes, he said, whether a man believes in 20 gods or no gods, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Mm-hmm. So Which is a foundation- pretty big deal in a country that mm-hmm. was, you know, has been very, very religious um, mm-hmm. and, you know, from the very beginning. Well, that was one of those startlingly modern things about him. Mm-hmm. He, he stood for universal values that so transcended time. How do you feel now, you know, your, your perspective as a historian and specifically being who you are, is Mm -hmm. such that you see the swath of history, you understand the river of history. Where do you feel we're going on the topic of race? Are things getting better or are things getting worse? Wow, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. I go day to day on that. I think it's good in the sense that we're having conversations that we've never had before about, you know, in a lot of different venues among different people who would never have raised this subject before. And so I think that's really important. But there's a backlash against a lot of that. As you know, down in Texas and in other places, there are legislators who don't want people to talk about the question of race under the rubric of critical race theory, which is a misunderstanding of what that's all about. But maybe that's another topic. But I, I, I am hopeful and at the same time a little apprehensive because there's a backlash against the effort to have an open conversation about the question of race because be, people assume that you're trying to make white people feel guilty. But these things happen. If you talk about the state of Texas, you talk about the, the republic, uh, the Constitution of the Republic of Texas promoted slavery. It protected slavery and said that African-Americans couldn't be citizens. There's no way around that, you know? I mean, you either, there's no point in hiding that. What we have to do is to talk about this in open ways and say, you know, that's the way people felt. We think they were wrong. 
uh, we're trying to write a new story for ourselves now, but you can't run away from all of this. Well, one of the things that you say in Juneteenth is the fact that you love someone doesn't mean that you're not going to be clear-eyed about their faults. I mean, sometimes it's a requirement of love to look Mm -hmm. deeply, and that's how I feel about the country. There's a difference between taking blame and taking responsibility. And I think that as a country, we owe the God of our understanding the same thing uh, that we owe as individuals, which is to look at our shadows, to look at our mistakes, to atone for our mistakes and to try to make them right. When you say that they don't, um, white people don't want to feel guilty, mm-hmm. there's something deeper than that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Although, Annette, I, I have felt, and I'd love your, to hear your thoughts on this, Barack Obama is not descended from slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, Kamala Harris is not descended from slaves. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is something about the fact that there's not a reminder there of something that could make us feel guilty, that there's mm-hmm. something about being in the presence of someone who doesn't carry up something that would bring up that much shame. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I mentioned the, the thing about guilt is because that's what people who have complained about, uh, who sort of support these laws say, that talking about race is a way of making white children feel bad about being white, which I've not, which I think is to my mind a non sequitur because I remember someone was talking about or complaining about the the book about Ruby Bridges, the the first black girl who, you know, the girl who integrated schools in New Mm -hmm, Orleans mm -hmm. and her story. And they were upset because there was a picture of, of an angry white mob yelling at her, this little girl. And in fact, that's what happened. But there was also a teacher, a white woman teacher who worked with Ruby Bridges. And why wouldn't the kids fixate on that person (laughs) instead of or identify with the person who's helping Ruby Bridges rather than the people who are out there screaming at them? So I, I do think that there's, you know, people look, it might be easier to look at an Obama or other people and not feel guilty because that you, you see them as not being a part of that legacy. Of, of slavery. Um, but Michelle, obviously, <laughs> was a descendant of enslaved people. And, and there was, you know, there's a lot of hostility towards her uh, among people. Um, maybe it's because it, it brought up a, a sense of, of, uh, of guilt about what happened in the past or not wanting to admit that things happened to the, in the past that influenced the way things are going today. I think that's a lot of it. There's there's a heavy investment in believing that the system has been fair and that, you know, all throughout and that people who who have what they have have gotten it through their hard work on a level playing field. But when you talk about the fact that there was slavery and then Jim Crow after that and that there were, you know, the town where my my grandparents lived, there was a curfew. Uh, Black people had to be indoors. By a certain point, if you if you talk about those kinds of things, you realize it hasn't been a level hasn't been close to a level playing field. Nothing close. And um, so it it, it is a sense of guilt that you may have gotten some things uh, with uh, through privilege that uh, privilege that was unearned, that was gotten because of your skin color. I think in any situation also there are extremes and and we can, like I heard Megyn Kelly talking on Bill Maher about how her six-year-old was taught you're a white supremacist. I understand somebody saying my six-year-old should not be loaded with mm-hmm. the title of, you know, but then people grab onto that. I would agree that. that too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Agree with that? 
I agree with that. As a, what do, what do you say to people who say to you, oh, you're a professor at Harvard. System mm-hmm. hasn't done wrong by you. What about mm-hmm. you? What do you say to that? Well, I'm, I'm one person. <laughs> you know, you can't, there are exceptions to all kinds of rules. Uh, I was fortunate to have the parents that I had to be in the circumstances that I was in, but it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't, you shouldn't think of one or two people as proving uh, the rule about something or suggesting that this society is, it has been fair all along because it, it certainly, it certainly hasn't been. Um, well, I think it's also the meritocracy issue. I mean, yeah. you, yes, yes, it is true. If you are profoundly brilliant or profoundly talented, then we have gotten to the point, and this, and listen, this is to be celebrated because there was a time when even this wasn't true. Bessie yeah. Smith, et cetera. Um, so it is true now. The had no appointment at any, Absolutely. You know, never. So it is true that if you were talented enough, smart enough, et cetera, Magic Perry, Annette, <laughs> Gordon Reed, Oprah Winfrey, you can make it, but someone should not have to be extraordinarily talented or brilliant to be able to have dignity and, and, and fairness and justice in America. Or to be lucky, you know, uh, That's to right. have luck. It, it's, That's right. It's a difference between, uh, you know, grow a, a flower growing up through concrete and a flower bed. You know, you, right. what you want, you want to cultivate as many people as possible from all races to, to allow people to uh, reach their, their potential. And that hasn't, that hasn't happened uh, um, in the United States for many years with Jim Crow. And, and after, even after it ends, I mean, the Voting Rights Act is 1965. I mean, we're not, we haven't been a, a country, a de jure uh, equal country for very long at all. Now we're not talking about de facto, but just the, by law, it hasn't been for a long time. So how do you think that we get rid of all that stuff in, in this short amount of time? And we're going backwards. I mean, if you look at something like the Voting Rights Act, it's been gutted. Mm-hmm. So history doesn't always move forward. Sometimes yeah. it's two steps forward, one step back. And that's what goes to the question that we were talking about before. Are we really doing better? Because when you look at things like mass incarceration, voter suppression, now voter nullification, who knows what's going to happen. You've been very generous with your time, and I'm so grateful to you. Uh, I have one last question for you. Um, if a white person says to you, what's the one thing that we, we could do as individuals that you think would help move all of this forward, what would it be? I think to talk to one another. I think white people have to challenge one another when they see people or hear people or know of people doing things that don't <laughs> improve, uh, that, that are, take us backwards and te- tell us take it instead of taking us forward. I think I can't, black people cannot and should not be in the position of trying to convince white people that we are human beings. Um, that's not, that's demeaning. It's not our role, I think. But I do think you have to challenge one another. That's how things have progressed in the United States uh, with the civil every, whether it's the abolitionists, the civil rights movement, white people who were willing to stand up to one another and say this is wrong. And they are the people who help to make a difference, working with black people, but certainly talking to people in ways that we can't. And so I think what it is, is to, is to have conversations with one another about uh, the kind of world that we, we want to make. 
Well, if somebody were to say to me, uh, Marianne, I want to have a conversation about race. I want to get a little group of people together. Where do you think we should start? I would suggest a book club and anything written by Annette Gordon-Reed. Uh, your you. combination of truth-telling and compassion, um, I believe, is, is a gift to this country, probably beyond what you even know. And uh, I thank you. I have been a tremendous fan. I will continue to be a <laughs> tremendous fan. Um, and I very much look forward to what you will write in the future, not only about the Hemings family, but about Jefferson himself. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. God bless thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.